0: Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo.
1: We want to welcome you guys all here as we study the book of Genesis. And I said at the beginning that we're going to open up Genesis and look at this text in probably some new ways that you've never imagined before, because the text has all these clues in it and these hints in it that. I just don't think most of us are familiar with and looking at it. And one of the things that we want to look at as we open up the book of Genesis is how is it understood later on? How does, how do the prophets understand it? How does the psalmist understand it? How does the New Testament understand it? And of course, we're going to start in Revelation 21, verse one, how is it understood and what's going on and what does this imagery mean and what's being conveyed by the, by the text. And I think we'll be helped by looking at other passages in the scriptures to see what they say. So we're going to begin with Revelation 21. One, does anybody want to read? I got it. Okay. Thanks, Anthony.
0: All right. I'm a NRSV. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more.
1: And so the question of the day is why is there no more sea? I mean, what does that have to do with anything? And I'm not going to answer the question as much as I just want you to be aware of the question.
0: No, I was just going to answer the question, but okay, go
1: ahead. What, What do you think?
0: Well, in studying it, I was fascinated how from the beginning there was water when all this exploration in space is trying to find water, and yet they haven't been able to do so. But yet, in the end, we would have no need for water because the water of life will be through Christ. So, okay, yeah, we're immersed.
2: All right, very good. Um, yeah, Rob, I had, a, I had a thought to that as well. Was, it. Um, isn't it supposed to be like the, the evil, like dragons come from the water, like oh. the, the bad stuff comes from like under the sea and
3: the abyss? Uh, Yes, 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 right. very good. That's, so like that's, kind of like evil
1: goes away, I guess. That, that's you know. correct. That's correct. That's, that's certainly a, a big part of it. That's right. So Anthony's answer was good, but it's still, I think we still leave the question of, okay, great, but why does Revelation 21 one single out the sea? I mean, if there's a new heaven and a new earth, why are we singling out there's no longer any sea? And I think Peter's answer now is kind of getting us a little bit further there, and John as well. It's the abyss, the place where the sea monsters are at, the dragon, the Leviathan, things of that nature also. So all right, let's begin by reading. Uh, Genesis chapter one, and we're going to read, and I, I don't typically like prefer you to any tr- particular translation at all, but let's stay away from the message at this point in time, or the new living translation at this point in time. Although the message actually might be interesting to see what it says. Um, I didn't even review it before him. So any other translation should be fine, but let's read uh, verses three through 13 to start with three through 13. And I want you to tell me when we're done, what kind of things stand out as far as the way the author has put this text together. Not like, what is the meaning of the verses here and there, but just like structure organizationally, how is the author putting all this together? So three through 13 of Genesis chapter one, if somebody wants to read
4: All right, Rob. Thank you. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw, God saw the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was an evening, and then there was a morning. The first day, and God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse of the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so.
1: There we go. We could continue on in the chapter and we will in a minute, but do you see anything that's in there that the author has put in there because he wants to capture your attention? I'm not talking about the content of like what he did on this day, or what he did on that day, but structural things, organizational things. What kind of things do you see that stand out organizationally?
5: So I noticed that he's separating and characterizing.
1: Okay. Very good. We're going to come back to that one. That's, that's good. Very good. Go ahead, Patty. Go ahead. I was going to
6: say, it's repetitive.
1: Yeah, what is?
6: He does repetitive things
1: in this in this storyline. Yeah. Does Can you name God one of them, said, for example?
6: And God said. OK,
1: very good. Very good. So, uh, so Peter, were you going to add something? Or I'm sorry,
2: Scott. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, and God said, uh, let there be something. Okay. So the whole of uh, the whole premise of him actually having to speak, I'm not sure who he's really speaking to because nobody exists yet. I mean so there was lots of discussion about the fact that he had to voice it, so to speak, in order for it to come into existence. Okay. there's a lot of a lot of discussion about that.
4: Okay. Um,
2: and then there was a, you know so that's the, that's sort of like the opening thing and then you know and there there was evening and morning it was a whatever day. Uh, very so, good. So it's like a novel we, or something.
1: Yes, there you go. <laughs> Each of the days begins with and God said. Now note, and God said doesn't always begin a day because in verse 11, it says, and then God said, but we're in the middle of the third day. And so we know that and God said begins each of the days and each of the days ends with and there was evening and there was morning the first day, the second day, the third day. And of course, if we go on, you'll notice in verse 14, and then God said, and then you'll notice in verse 19, there was evening this morning, the fourth day, verse 20 begins with and God said. And of course, verse 23 says, there was evening this morning, the fifth day. And then verse 24, and then God said, and of course, at the end of the chapter of chapter one, and it says in verse uh, 31, very good. There was evening in this morning, the sixth day. Now, so you'll note that the first six days, of course, by the way, the seventh day doesn't begin with, and God said, and we'll get to that uh, later on. But notice also that there's actually a couple intrusions of, and God said also. So in the middle of the third day, God speaks verse 11. In the middle of the sixth day, God speaks again in verse 26. And then God said, let us make man in our image. And here's, what, here's what's interesting. If you count the and God says, and again, you got to be careful with your English translation, whether they were consistent with this or not. And God said occurs 10 times. You're like, oh, well, you know, that could just be like a, a coincidence, you know, uh, whatever. How about this? The very first verse has seven words. The second verse has 14 words. All right, well, you know, coincidence, possibly. So verses 1-1, one, one, Genesis 1-1, one, one. of course, verse numbers weren't there. Nonetheless, the first sentence has seven words in Hebrew, not in English, in Hebrew.
6: I'll say
1: yeah, yeah, in Hebrew. Uh, it was good occurs seven times. The name God, Elohim, is 35 times. Let there be is 10 times. According to its kind, occurs 10 times. And if you just keep looking, it's like, okay, the author has probably taken a lot of time to craft this. Of course, another thing that stands out is that the days seem to start getting, the description of the days gets longer. So the first day, uh, verses three through five, the second day, six through eight, the third day, nine through 13, the fourth day, 14 through 19, then the the fifth, the description, basically, they keep getting, you know, the fifth day actually is shorter than, than the fourth day, um, but the, the sixth day is twice as long as the third and the fourth days. In fact, it's actually longer than the third and fourth days combined. Like, oh, so the author's building up to something and something's going on. Now, if we take this then. And the point for right now is this, and don't worry about all the statistics because it doesn't matter. The point actually is the author's writing it this way because he wants us to see these things. He wants us to um, look at it. He wants us to count the number of words. He wants us to count the number of times that this phrase occurs. He wants us to do these things to show you the beauty that he has embedded in the text. But if we then conclude that the days all begin with, and God said, and they all end with, and there was evening, there was morning, the first day, the second day, the third that, that's pretty obvious. The question is what do you do with verses one and two? Because if that's the case, the first day begins in verse three. So, what's one and two doing? So, that's one of the questions that we got we have to figure out. Wow, what's what's going on? Now, verse one, just to give you a little context, is probably like a title. And here's the deal: God doesn't begin the seven days of creation until verse three. So this is going to be new for you. Maybe the idea that Genesis one, one is the beginning of the cosmos is not what the author's talking about. The cosmos is already there. In other words, Genesis one, one doesn't say in the beginning, God created everything because God doesn't do anything until the third day until I'm sorry, until verse three. So what's happening then? If you look at the new revised standard, Anthony, you have the NRS, right? That's what you use?
0: Uh, yeah, I have the NRSV. Yeah. Hey, one thing that really stood out to me on that, too, real quick, is that in, in reading this, you asked us to write questions down. And what I, I came up with is it's a very Earth centric view. And Copernicus, Galileo, Lamatra, all of them had faith and they were looking to understand the heart of God. But they were some of the first to see that hey, there was something that existed outside of this. It's it's not necessarily an earth-centric. So in the creative order, if we're focusing on what he's doing, I, I agree with you because he's, if he brought the sun and the moon in, and if the cosmos is already out there, then how would that how would that transpose?
1: Yeah, I think I think I could understand why someone would say it's earth-centric. I think you can say it's androcentric more. It's, it's human-centered more. Truly, truly. But I think I'd say even more, actually, that's theocentric, which is God-centered. Amen. And ultimately, the point's going to be Eden. The point of this is going to be Eden. So chapter two, where we're going to get, quote, unquote, another creation account, it's a parallel account, yeah. uh, that's going to be far more important than this account here, than Genesis chapter one. Yeah. It's just that what happens is that we embed Genesis one today in our modern dialogue with all this meaning that's not there. So, Anthony, if you have the NRS, look at just the very beginning of Genesis 1.1. And this is going to be different than any of your other translations. But look at, listen to what the NRS says in Genesis
0: 1.1. In the beginning when God created.
1: Stop. There you go. There's a word that was inserted in there that's not in any of your other English Bibles. Anybody notice that word? Can I repeat it? Yeah, say it again, when? Anthony. When.
0: In the beginning when God created. There you go.
1: But when. The word When. Mm. Now the reality is actually this is that's probably a correct translation, even though it's the only English translation that I know of that does that adds the word when. In other words, Genesis 1 1 isn't saying in the beginning God did this. It's saying in the beginning when God did this. And what he did is actually starts in verse three on the very first day of creation. He doesn't do anything before the first day. And I think the when is actually correct and the, the Hebrew grammar supports the fact that the, the first day actually, Sorry, that, that Genesis 1.1 is telling us about the conditions that existed prior to the creation of creation. Now, with that being in mind, if that's the case, again, most scholarship is going to agree with that. Okay. Mo- I know most pastors might not say it because they're just afraid to preach it because they can't, they don't want to do it with the with the congregations. Most scholarship's gonna agree with that. Not all, most. That Genesis 1.1 is telling us what was existing prior to God beginning his creation. Now, by the way, I'm not saying that the Bible doesn't teach that God created the heavens and the earth out of nothing. I'm just saying Genesis 1 doesn't say that. I think you can find in the Psalms and elsewhere in the prophets that God created everything, what we call ex nihilo, out of nothing. Mm -hmm. Sure, I I affirm that. I'm just saying Genesis isn't saying that. Genesis is saying, look, creation is already there, but here's the reality. Verse 2. The earth was formless and void. Uh, Does anybody have a translation that says something different than those two words, formless and void?
2: Formless and empty.
1: Empty. Formless and empty. Somebody else? Formless wasteland. Okay, there you go. Actually, that's really good. Uh, What translation is that, Jackie? N-A-B. Okay, New American Bible. All right, good. The the words are, you may have heard this before, you may not have, tohu vabohu. And they just they rhyme, that's why you may have heard of it. Uh, Tohu vabohu. And what they describe actually is an empty wasteland. They had no shape. They had no form. They had no productivity. The word tohu often means a desert, unproductive. Vabohu is like a wasteland. And that's why it's actually a pretty good translation. What's happening actually, and look what it says after that. It says, formless and void and darkness was over the surface of the deep. Now, I don't know if you have a translation that says something different than that. The surface of the deep. The deep is a reference to the oceans, the seas, the land, the the entire world is covered with water. And what what do we know about the water? What's this deep and this deep is an existence. And that's what revelation 21, one is saying won't exist any longer. There's no longer any sea because the sea is chaos. And Peter, I think indicated this at the beginning in the sea are dragons or Leviathans and sea creatures. Look at the book of Job, the Tanim, they live in the seas and they're fearsome creatures and they cannot be tamed oh well yahweh can tame them but you can't and you're not to tread over there it's this chaos and think of it this way when god destroys the world you all know the answer to this one in genesis chapter six seven eight and nine what does he do mm-hmm. he brings the water back the flood is the undoing of creation So as we read the first couple of chapters, a couple of verses here, the first couple of days, what we notice is God separates the waters because the waters are chaos. It's deep. The chaos monsters live there. It's not good. This is bad news. You can't do anything with this. It's wasteland. Now, again, wasteland, I think in English often conveys like desert, but this is the surface of the deep though. That's why it's wasteland. It's watery, uh, a grave. It's, I think John Grucker said it's the abyss. It's this depth. It's this, remember when Jesus throws the, the demons out, and those men and the pigs, and the pigs do what? They run into the mm-hmm. sea because the sea is the abyss, and that's what exists now. So when God goes to destroy the world with the flood, He's bringing the waters back. It's called decreation and and creation and decreation. Mm. So that that's what's happening here, and and we'll go into more detail about this as well. Now, uh, one quick note here, and I, I we may look at one of these or two of these la- later on, but. We actually have a great ability to understand what was happening in the Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 stories because there's been so many archeological discoveries in the last 100 or so years that have unearthed all these ancient stories of creation, the Akkadian stories and the uh, Ugaritic stories and the Babylonian stories. We have all these stories and we realize the Genesis story was living in that world and it was telling the story of creation the way they told the story of creation, but it's doing something distinct. And that's what we're going to kind of focus on by the time we get done with the end end of today. So, all right, so we have this structural pattern going on the days begin with, and God said the days end with, it was good. Of course, the sixth day is going to be very good. Uh, And there was evening. There was morning, the first day, second day, third day, fourth day. Now let's notice right now, I'll just mention this now because we won't get that far tonight. And that is the seventh day has no end. It never says there was evening and morning, the seventh day, it never ends. And so what are we supposed to do with that? Okay. That's, that's just one of the questions that the author wants us to do. Another thing to note is that if you look at days one, two, and three, and I think I kind of gave you this on the notes there, uh, day one, light and darkness, day two, the sea and the sky, we'll maybe discuss that in a minute, day three, the land, sea, and the vegetation. And if you take days one, two, and three, and four, five, and six, and you match them up alongside each other. In other words, one and four match up, two and five match up, three and six match up. And you're going to see that what God, what God fashioned on day, day one, he fills on day four. So he fashions the uh, light and darkness on day one. And then what does he do? He puts the sun, the moon, and the stars there. So he, he makes the, the expanse. On day two, he makes the sea and the sky. And what does he do on day five? Well, he makes the sea animals and the birds. And on day three, he makes the land, the sea, and the vegetation and on day six, he makes the land animals and man. So what God fashions on day one, he fills with on day four. What he fashions on day two, he fills on day five. And that's pretty obvious that he's constructed this for us to see this. Now we wanna say, well, the pinnacle of the creation is day six. And we're led to think that it's day six because well, that's clearly when he made man or humanity, and that's obviously the pinnacle of his creation. It's the longest of all the days. So the author's leading up to this. The days are all getting longer. The fifth day gets a little shorter, which is surprising. And then the sixth day is like really long. It's got to be the sixth day. I'm going to argue, and I won't do this maybe for a week or two weeks, one or two sessions, that day number seven is the most important day because God's done. He's rested. The chaos that existed, the things that existed that, that made it so they couldn't fashion his creation was unusable. Are all put to, put put aside now, and God's able to rest. But more significantly, let me kind of give you the little clue. It's a temple. What God's creating is a temple for Him to dwell in, and then image bearers, humanity, mm-hmm. who will image Him outside that temple to the rest of creation, and bringing that temple to the rest of the creation. That's kind of the the big the big picture that we have here. So, all right, let me stop. Any questions? Have I gone too quickly over something, or or not? Kind of the repeat one and two verses one and two are kind of giving us what's existing prior to the God fashioning his creation. It doesn't mean that God didn't create out of nothing. That's just not what Genesis is talking about. Uh, and what we have fastened there is we have chaos and it's the watery chaos. All right now, let me kind of go one step further with this water theme before we move on to the, each of the days. Unless unless you have some other questions. Let's go to the book of Revelation. I know. I know. We just got to right, <laughs> Revelation chapter 17. And I didn't give you this in your references there. Maybe I'll add them to the, to the notes there. So if you're listening online, I'm going to put all the, I'll put the uh, outline in the show notes. So Revelation chapter 17. And remember this because, well, I will remind you of this in a few weeks, because we're going to get, we're going to read Ezekiel 40 through 48 or chapter 47 in particular in a few weeks. So you have in Revelation 17 verse, somebody want to read Revelation 17 verse 1.
2: On one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits by many waters.
1: Interesting translation by many waters. It's usually translated as on many waters.
2: As N-I-B, I don't know. Uh,
1: yeah. Yeah. Well, whatever. <laughs> we do. Yeah, okay. So uh, she sits on, on many waters. All right, now, let's not worry about who this woman is. But note, it's a woman who sits on many waters. Now we're told what the waters mean in verse 15. So, everyone read Revelation 17, verse 15.
2: Then the angel said to me, The waters you saw where the prostitute sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. Ah,
1: the waters are people. So, keep that in mind. Because now that doesn't, by the way, the waters can have multiple imagery. It, it can mean a number of things. It can be the source of chaos. It could be the place of the deep. It could be the place of the, 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 um, the Viathan, the Rehav, Tanim. It can be the source of all those things, but it can also be people. Hmm. And the waters, which the, where the woman sits are many peoples, yeah. nations, tongues, and, uh, and languages. Okay. So here we go. So day one, uh, let's just kind of go over that in case there's any questions. It says, uh, God uh, makes And I put in the notes, it says the heavens and the earth. That's a common translation. Does anybody have anything different? I'm sorry, this is not day one. This is um, uh, verse one, the heavens and the earth. Does anybody have anything different in Genesis 1, 1 than heavens and the earth? I put in on the outline, uh, the word heavens could be the sky and the word earth could be the land. The word gay in Hebrew just means the land. And it could be the whole land, the whole earth, or it could be like a particular land. And so we'll kind of keep that in mind there. All right, here we go. Second thing to notice, uh, letter C on the outline, it says the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Ah, the spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Now, when Adam is created, all right, if we were to skip forward to chapter two for a second, right? When Adam is created, the way this creation of, of adam is described it says that god fashions this human out of the mud out of the earth mm-hmm. and then it says and then he breathed on him right genesis chapter 2 verse uh, verse 7 the lord god formed man from the dust of the ground and he breathed into his nostrils the hebrew word ruach means breath wind Spirit, it can, it can have like four or five different meanings. It's the same word here. So the spirit is hovering over the waters in Genesis 1, verse 2. And that spirit now breathes into Adam and he becomes a living being. And so the spirit of God is the creative force, energy. Obviously, it's the person of God, but whether we make the triune distinction here or not, it's, it's God's creative force that's hovering over the water. So we've got this chaotic waters and God's going to do something about it. Day one, uh, that God creates uh, light and darkness. He separates the light and the darkness. And of course, uh, people say, well, how do you get light and darkness when the sun, moon, and the stars haven't been made? And that is an example of how we have modern questions that are asked of an ancient text that they weren't even asking. So it's like the question, there's no answer to the question because the question doesn't make any sense. We could try and go, oh, because God's light. Well, sure, true, no problem. But he's separating the light from the darkness. And God can't be separated. So I don't think that's the answer either. The point of it is, it's a modern question that we're trying to ask of an ancient text, and they weren't even interested in asking those questions. Day number two now is, he separated the waters this way, vertically. There's this watery chaos, and he puts this expanse in the middle of it. And he puts some water above the expanse, and he puts some water below the expanse. Now, as far as we understand, the ancient world believed that where the stars are was a dome and above the dome was water. And that appears what the author of Genesis kind of is, is, is saying, Here, here's what's going on. You have this expanse and God put a sky in the middle of it. Yep. I'm sorry. You have this water, watery chaos. And God put a sky in the middle. He separates it. And he puts a sky in the middle of it. All right, day number three, he creates the land, sea, and the vegetation. And so now what does he do is he creates the, he, he separates the water horizontally. So if day two, if he he separated the water vertically, day number three, he separates the water horizontally. And you can begin to see that it's the water that's the problem here. The water is in the way of creation. It's in the way of God making this place usable and doable. And we realize we got to think about water as being something more than just water though, though, right? Because water has this imagery of abyss and chaos. Day number four four, he creates moon in the stars. Let's go to day five. I know we haven't read day four. That's okay. Uh, day number five. Does somebody want to read verses 20 through 23?
6: Then God said, let the water team with an abundance of living creatures, and on the earth, let birds fly beneath the dome of the sky. And so it happened. God created the great sea monsters and all kinds of swimming creatures with which the water teams and all kinds of winged birds god saw how good it was was and god blessed them saying be fertile multiply and fill the water of the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth evening came and morning followed the fifth day
1: all right so i put in the notes that he creates uh, that there's two kinds of creatures that live in the water one of these large sea monsters and your bible might not say it that way but that's literally what the word means Tanim. I think um, I didn't actually catch Jackie's translation there. It said sea monsters. Yeah. Okay. My Mine says sea monsters also. I think the New American Standard and the New American Bible are there. Does, oh, yeah. You guys have like sea creatures, things like yeah. that. Mm-hmm. Creatures. Yeah. yeah. Creatures. So the New American Standard, is actually it's more accurate because it's sea monsters. It's the Tanim. It's the, the Leviathan, the creatures that, that roam the sea. And God's like, yeah, he made them. He put them in the waters. Yeah. No problem at all. We think of them later on in the Bible as these fearsome creatures, maybe mythical creatures, not even real creatures. And Genesis is like, no, they're totally real. God put them in there. Uh, and of course, God is the one who can tame them and control them and all things are good. And obviously, and he said, by the way, it was good. They're not even bad. So we're curious.
6: we're curious over here as to why he would do that.
1: Well, they're good. Yeah, they're good. They're good. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with them. They're good. So, and he even told them to be fruitful and multiply. So, which by the way, note that the sea creatures and the land animals are going to be told to be fruitful and multiply, but Adam and Eve or humanity is going to be told to be fruitful and multiply, and then also to rule and subdue. So there's going to be something uh, different there. Uh, Let me mention one thing that I skipped over on the fourth day. And that is on the fourth day, it says, let there be expanse in the the heavens. Let there be, verse 15, let there be lights in in the expanse. Verse 16, it says, he made the two great lights, the greater light to cover the day and the lesser light to cover the night. What's he talking about? What does verse 16 refer to? Sun and moon. The sun and the moon. Why aren't they named? I mean, isn't it just easier to say the sun and the moon?
2: The point I was reading about this and I some of the other religions had sun gods and moon gods. Yeah, that's what it's from know. what I recollect. Yes, so.
1: they did. That's right. Especially Egypt. Ra, the God yeah. of the sun, one of the gods in Egypt. All right, so, one of the questions that we're not going to address, but we're just going to let, like, note that it's there and say there's a couple possibilities. And as we go through the book of Genesis, maybe we'll kind of answer it more. But one of the questions to ask is, like, well, when was this written? And of course, as soon as you say that, you're, you know, I, I immediately raise the ire of all the evangelicals in the world going, oh, I know what it was written. You know, it's like, okay, stop. the basic ideas is it was written by Moses that's the conservative viewpoint and Moses we're not certain of Moses's date but somewhere between 1400 and something odd BC and 1200 and something odd BC so depending on what you want to do with Moses's date somewhere in there 1400 and some odd BC 1450 to 1200 and some odd BC the date of Moses others would say that the book of Genesis was written maybe sometime in the sixth century BC during what's known as the Babylonian captivity. Mm-hmm. So you have that span of time and it could have been that it was written and edited over, you know, it could have been both. It could have been an original text there with edit edits over the course of time because there are edits in the text. And, and I know we're not all comfortable with that, but it's they're there. And that's just the way it is. So that's going to help us understand what's going on also in terms of the author, in terms of the objectives, if. Genesis was written to the Israelite people during the time of Moses, then what we know is it's Moses' way of saying, hey, let me tell you about the God who created all things and not the gods that you've been worshiping for the last 400 years. Not that you're 400 years old, but you and your ancestors have been in in Egypt for for 400 years. For 400 Mm. years, the Israelites were in Egypt and under the gods of Egypt the gods of the cattle, the gods of the flies, the gods of, of raw, the sun, God, all these gods. And it could be that one of the things that Genesis one is doing is, you know, all those gods that you used to worship created by our God, created by our God. Now I'm leaving the word God here, generic, and we're going to discuss this probably week three, because I don't, we might get there next week. But one of the things to notice is that the word God in the book of Gen- in Genesis chapter one, it's always God. And you're like, well, what's the big deal about that? Well, the word God in Genesis one is the word Elohim, yeah. right? You may have heard Elohim. Im, the I am ending on a Hebrew word means it's plural. It's a masculine word that's in the plural. Ot, O-T, O-T, uh, Shava O-T uh, would be a feminine word that's plural. That's how they make plural words in Hebrew. O-T is O-T is feminine. And I am as masculine. So Elohim is just the generic word for God. In fact, when it's applied to other gods, it's like translated as gods. But when it's applied to the biblical God, it's always singular because the biblical God is one. It's here always where the Lord your God is one. So we know that we should translate this word as God. It, that, there's no problem with that. It, but it's a it's just it's a generic word. It just it doesn't tell you who it is. So you remember when Moses and some of you might remember we did a study of you know, justice. And we kind of look briefly at Exodus 1 and Exodus 2 uh, and Exodus 3. Exodus 1, Exodus 2, there's a problem. The Israelites cry out unto God. And then at the end of chapter 2, God heard their cry. And he says, Moses, chapter 3, Moses, I want you to go do my business for me. Okay. That's this, this great missional call that God always does his business through his people. Not, he doesn't divinely intervene and say, I'm just going to strike that. No, he calls us, Hey, Moses, go, go take care of my thing for me. And then Moses says, you know, I'm not sure I'm like the best candidate here, which basically means I don't really wanna do this. And he comes up with excuses. And his first excuse, anybody remember what it was? His first, I, I can't go to the Israelites because I don't even know your name. Who are you? And God says, I am the Lord. See, because Elohim is just God but it doesn't tell us like which God it is. And actually let's kind of cut to the, cut to the chase on this thought while, while we're at it. Look at Genesis chapter two, verse four now. So all the way through chapter two, verse three, the word God occurs 35 times. Genesis two, verse four says, this is the account of the heavens and the earth. When they were created in the day that the Lord God created them. Ah, Okay. Genesis 2, verse 4 finally tells you who did it. See, so us English speakers, we think, oh, God did it. It's, it's really obvious. It doesn't tell you which God it is. Until Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, and the word Lord is Yahweh, the Hebrew God of the Old Testament, who revealed himself to Abraham, by the way, but he also called him, revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush. I am the Lord. That is my name. So now we know, oh, it's the Lord God who did this. All right, so it may be, the point then is, that genesis chapter one is what we call a polemic it's an argument against something and an argument against something what is an argument against it's an argument against the gods of egypt you know the word the gods that used to i'm not even going to name them i'm not even going to name the sun and the moon it's like the lesser light and the greater light you know what i mean but they're not worthy of being named because they're created by well as we find out in genesis 2 verse 4 by elohim or by uh, yahweh does that make sense Are we good? Any questions? Uh, Day number six. Day number six. Genesis chapter one. And let's read, if somebody wants to read verses 24 through 31 and the the end of the chapter. Genesis two. uh, Genesis one, 24
6: through 31. I'll read.
1: Oh, Okay, go ahead. Thanks, Patty.
6: I'm always raising my hand.
1: (laughs) Yeah, there you go. Uh, And you don't even have your camera on, so I can't even see your hand.
6: And God said, verse 24, let the land produce living creatures according to their kind, livestock, creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and all over the creatures that move along the ground. Then God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in the number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with the seed in it. They will be yours for food. And you to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything he has, the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was the evening, and there was morning, the sixth day.
1: All right. Very good. Anything stand out here in this description?
2: Yeah, Rob, I had a question. Yeah, please. I feel like I've read just a million times and <clears throat> i never read this part before but he says let us make mankind in our image in our likeness Yes. our sounds plural to me i always thought i was like in in god's image and uh, who's our like it's okay. like more than one person out there now
1: yes that one's the one that patty patty's waiting for the answer for right oh, oh. <laughs> right right patty So, we're going to save that for next week. Okay. Because it's a it's a huge question, and I'm not going to be able to get into it in like 10 minutes. We're going to start it, and you're going to go, one, leave all troubled and disgruntled and uncertain what to do with anything. So, we're going to have to start with that next week. Okay. Fair Um, enough. But very good. So, it's a a keen observation. Just a
2: quick one uh, before you leave that subject the image, the word image, also has multifacets to it, meaning. Is it a physical image? Is it the nature of God? I mean, what does it really mean um, to make man in His image? does okay. it mean that His powers. I mean, His capabilities, His intellect, the spirit. I mean, it's. I mean, I've sort of gone on this road before, and it's kind of. I just get. Oh my God! Uh, it's like kind of overwhelming, really. But
1: yeah, yeah. I realized that for 20 something years of teaching and what have you, or not, I didn't teach on Genesis a whole lot, um, yeah. but 20 uh, something years in the church and thinking you labor over this question in theology classes, labor over this question. The answer actually is really pretty easy. I'm so, like, why do we make such a big deal of this? So image, and we'll discuss this more next week. Image okay. is, a, is a role. It's a responsibility. It's a title. It's obvious that it can't be the physical image because God has no physical image, right? God is spirit. Um, so yeah. it, it can't be physical image. Yeah. It's, it's a role. And we'll, and we'll look at this also. So two big questions next week is the Genesis 1, and 27 and 28. And that is, uh, let us make man in our image. Who, who are the us and what's going on there? And what does it mean that man's made humanity is made in the image of God? And I'll give you a quick answer to that now. And that is, we're made in God's image means that we are to reflect his glory and his presence to the creation. That we are to image him as in the sense that we fulfill a role of making God known to the Mm. rest of creation. So remember, here's the kind of the nutshell of it. And we're going to look at this over the next several weeks. God dwells in Eden. We learned that in chapter two, God's in Eden. Humanity is not made in Eden. We'll look at that Mm. in a a couple of weeks. Humanity is made outside of Eden and then brought into Eden and then told, now go fill the earth and multiply and be fruitful and multiply and rule and subdue the earth. And we'll have to figure out what all that means. And the idea was that we take God's garden presence with us as we go out by making mm-hmm. him known. Another way of looking at that, of course, is John chapter one, Jesus is the image of God. And, and he has made the father known John one verse 18 says, uh, that's the idea he's in John 14, 14, verse nine, Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. Mm-hmm. And so of course, Colossians one will say he is the image of the invisible God. He's imaged God. He's the perfect image of that. And that's what we're supposed to do is to, to make him known. So that's kind of uh, it's a missional context. Then the point of its missional: go out and make him known, mm-hmm. and we we'll have to figure out what all that means and kind of add some add some uh, nuts and bolts to that. Also, uh, next really into the
4: spiritual paradise piece of that—that's what Jesus is telling us. It's not physical; it's spiritual.
1: It's uh, I don't like I don't like physical spiritual dichotomy, though, Tim, because it usually conveys a dualism that's that's actually Platonic and Neoplatonism um, mm-hmm. and ancient Gnosticism, and, and the biblical authors aren't doing that either. If that makes sense to some of you. Uh, it's more, it transcends those. In other okay. words, we are physically in God's image, although God doesn't have a physical image, but we're to manifest his image and, uh, and his nature. Uh, I guess the ultimate way I would say that would be, of course, love, right? They'll know it's you're fine. my disciples mm-hmm. if you love one another. Yeah. And that's not just a spiritual thing. That That's an act that we do. And so um, you're right, but I don't like using physical, spiritual, Especially because it suggests, yeah, yeah, it, it, yeah, exactly. And it just suggests, modernism and and enlightenment theology that's archaic from from Plato, if you know what I mean there. And I think you're up on some of that at least a little bit, so. So, Yeah, please. Hi, Jess,
5: yeah. Well, you are saying God is love. I was just having this conversation, yes, actually late last night, when I was asked about, um, about the image of God and who God is, and I said, God is love. Right. And I said, well, if you think of God as love, what is love? God is patient, you know, um, we look at that God is patient and that's one of the first things. And, and I think of even kindness Mm -hmm. isn't niceties, right? Kindness is not niceties. It is, um, truth. Yeah. And the, and that, and, and that is love when we are, when we help each other, if you see someone among you, um, Um, who's close to us, who is struggling, who might be falling into temptation or about to fall. We step in, in kindness, and we speak, and we help that person um, to set their feet straight or to help them into a place of restoration from where they were. So um, I guess that's what I think of uh, in God's image.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Very good. All right. Well, we'll unpack that more next week. Uh, both the question of who the, who is the us as well as yeah. what does it mean to ma- made in his image? Quick couple notes here and then we'll finish up. What are some things that stand out to you about the description of the sixth day? Besides obviously it's extra length and obviously the uniqueness of humanity, uh, that, well, I guess the, the first thing would be the fact that he says, let us make man in our image, uh, instead of, uh, what else about the creation of man? That's distinct, that distinguishes it from the other days of creation. I kind of already gave the answer to this a little earlier to be honest with you, you about the
4: climax of humanity of, of mankind yeah
1: yeah in specific what is it what does it say in, in regards to humanity that's different from what it says in regards to the animals
4: but we represent the creator and creation we yes. are in charge
1: yes correct and he uses the t- uh, two words rule and subdue yeah yeah, yeah, exactly. right, right. yeah that's, that's right so note he told the creation the the birds of the air and the fish of the sea to be fruitful and multiply in verse 22. so being fruitful and multiply which is a theme you're going to continuously see throughout the book of yes. Genesis and Exodus and, and elsewhere. You're mm-hmm. going to constantly see this Eden imagery, creation imagery of being fruitful and multiply. All of the animals have that, uh, but humanity is told not only to be fruitful and multiply, but uh, fill the earth, but also to rule and subdue. And we'll talk about what does that mean, because obviously that's part of what uh, image of God means. Uh, next week, we need to go looking at elsewhere in the Bible and seeing how the biblical authors refer back to this Genesis language. So the reason why it's important to kind of go through slowly through the first three, four, five chapters of Genesis is the themes that happen here in these early chapters continuously play out as we move on. Right. Right? So Noah is going to be another Adam. Abraham is going to be another Adam, right? We're just going to co- constantly see this. Hey, Abraham, you come here. Hey, Adam, you come here right now. Go out and bless. So, um, and, and he god blessed them and being fruitful and multiply remember if you're with us exodus chapter one says that the israelites were in the land of goshen and they were being fruitful and multiplying and the land was becoming full of them and the pharaoh goes by the way pharaoh he's rahav rahav is the dragon the serpent and of course the serpent enters the garden and tempts adam and pharaoh is the serpent and so you just you constantly see this imagery keep coming up over and over and over again There's a tree of life in the book of Genesis. And then guess what Moses sees? A bush that's burning. It's a tree, but it's not consumed. And guess what? You're standing on holy ground. The tree is where God's presence is. The tree of life is where God's, throughout the Bible. And obviously the book of Revelation, guess what? It's there too. We wanna see these imageries and see how the rest of the Bible's uh, using it. And we're gonna keep doing this slowly and keep reminding ourselves because some of these things are things you're like, I've never heard this before. So we're going to do like one or two at a time and then come back to it next week. Cause you're going to go, all right, what was that about the sea being like um, watery chaos? I don't understand that. And I know what we're doing is we're trying to go, well, how did, how did that actually happen? Don't think that way. We have to get away from that thing. Like, how did this actually work? And I'm not saying that you can't ask scientific questions. I'm just saying don't do that now. Yeah. Right? Cause, cause that's, if you do that now, you're gonna miss because you're never gonna be able to fit in the box of what Moses is saying, the the things, that, the questions you're trying to ask. So those questions can come up, they just can't come up right now because they're just gonna hinder our ability to kind of un- understand the text. So let's go look at a couple other texts. We already looked at Revelation 17, we looked at Revelation 21. So Revelation 21, there's no more sea, why not? Because it's chaos and there's no chaos in the new creation. And then we saw Revelation 17, the woman sits on many waters, and the waters are people. Oh, okay. Let's look at Psalm 69, verses 1 through 4 now. Psalm 69, verses 1 through 4. And I know I didn't put these on your notes, but I'll add them to the show notes. If you're listening right now, uh, I'll add them there. Psalm 69, 1 through 4. Somebody wants to read Psalm 69, uh, 1 through 4.
3: This NASB. Mm-hmm. Save me, O God, for the waters have threatened my life. I have sunk in deep mire, and there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters, and a flood overflows me. I am weary with my crying. My throat is parched. My eyes fail while I wait for my God. Those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. Those who would, be, who would destroy me are powerful, being wrongfully my enemies, What I did, what I did not steal, I then have to restore. And we
1: might not get past this verse here. What is the author afraid of? The waters. Yeah. The waters. Why? I mean, he describes the waters as what?
3: Kind of like the abyss, right? The deep mire. There is no foothold. There's no foothold. That's.
1: It's, gen- it's, it's chapter one, verses one and two, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's the waters of chaos, the tohu vabohu, the, the deep mire. They flood and overtake me. But he's also afraid of something else.
3: Gosh.
1: What's he afraid of? What else is he afraid of?
4: Those who hate oh.
1: me. yeah. People. He's afraid of water and he's afraid of people. Well, we already know the answer, Water are, waters are people. There's two separate images, and this it's doing both things. It's, it's both water as water and people as people. So it's, it's both that, that's true also, but it's also water as people. And we know that of course, most clearly from the book of Revelation. And now, by the way, you, you might go, well, that seems to be stretching it a little bit. Well, I don't think it is, but if you understood Hebrew poetry, then you'd understand exactly what's going on, because Hebrew poetry uses two things, right? It's this, and then this, and these two things match up to each other. So Hebrew poetry often does what's called parallelism. It's, it's two lines that repeat each other. The second line often adds something to it or clarifies or confirms it. And so what we have here is this parallelism, and it's this flood waters, and no, by the way, it's this flood waters, and he's in a mire, and yet his throat is parched. Like what? And you see the imagery, because what does tohu bohu mean? It means a wasteland. So that's how we can have a parched throat in the middle of these floodwaters. And then he says, so that's verses one and two. I'm weary, and because those who hate me are more numerous than the hairs of my head. They're like a floodwater, aren't they? Ah, uh, does that make sense a little bit? So the author is, is telling us this magnificent story of God as the creator, and I would, I would stop tonight by, by noting this, or tomorrow, tomorrow morning for those of you guys in India, And uh, good to see you, Marcus, I'm glad that you joined us also, and Karunakar. And that is, the creation story reminds us of, well, I mean, there's a, there's a hymn that we sing, or song, you know, uh, uh, how great is our God? Or we're reminded of Jesus' words, why do you worry about food and clothing? If God so arrays the grass, the field, and and the birds of the air, won't he care for you, oh, men of little faith, or, or the book of Revelation? So uh, worthy are you to receive glory, honor, and praise because you created all things. So there's so much enveloped in the idea of God as the sovereign creator. And what we're seeing in the Genesis account is, and if we were to compare it to some of the ancient creation stories that happening is, is we're finding out that God's actually the creator of it all. And the other gods that you are worshiping are actually subordinate to him because he created them. And then, of course, the ultimate climax that we'll get into is the fact that he put humanity there to now go make him known. So it's both worship, it's both mission, discipleship, and practical spirituality of why am I worried about food and clothing when God so raised the grass of the field. And, of course, the book of Job, like, you guys, I'm, what are you doing, Job? You, can you call him the Leviathan? No, but I can. Or the behemoth? No, but I can. You can't tame these creatures, but I can. And so I think that's a lot of the things that we want to reflect upon here as we stop and going, okay, I'm trying to make sense of this creation story, but we can't lose sight of the fact of this bigger picture of the greatness of this creation that God has done, even if it's not about creation on ex nihilo in Genesis chapter one.
0: Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Please subscribe to and like our podcast. You can follow Rob's blog at DeterminedTruth.com or purchase his books on Amazon.com. See you next time.